Well, hello there. I'm Karen Sander. You are listening to Aging Fearlessly, a program for the over 50s, those uniquely wonderful baby boomers. My aim is to educate, motivate and inspire you to embrace the exciting journey of life for decades to come. So stay tuned to meet a variety of guests who will share their stories and passions to help us gain insight into the ways to live a happier, healthier life. Welcome everyone to Aging Fearlessly podcast and radio. Matt McLaughlin, thank you for coming on my program again. Last time we spoke was Anzac Day. And I absolutely love that interview. And I've been following your Living History podcasts ever since and tuning in as often as I can. And uh, so, Matt, you run the Battlefield Tours and you have the Living History podcast. So tell us just a little bit about yourself and how you became involved. Well, thanks, Karen. It's great to be back on the show. And obviously, at the moment, there's not a lot of Battlefield Tours happening with COVID and everything else that's going on. So it's giving me the opportunity to focus very strongly on the, um, on the media side of the work that I do, which is living history. So living history is um, my podcast. We've, we've just got a book coming out very shortly on the Gallipoli evacuation. We do videos all about history. So basically I get to, I get the rare privilege of exploring Australian history and, and telling these stories in a really great way. So I'm, I'm really lucky. And even during COVID, there's still the silver lining of being able to do all this great media work. So I live and breathe history. I've been doing it now for about 15 years. And uh, yeah. I'm just lucky that, that I get to do this uh, as my career. Well, my mother um, asked me about the things you're doing, and she's 92. My mother is just a history fanatic. And whenever I'm up there, she asks me now, because the last recording I did with you, I was staying up at her place through COVID. And uh, she knew I was doing that interview. And I went out and uh, played it to her afterwards and she just absolutely loved it so she's very very much a fan so matt um the 6th to the 10th of august marks um another anniversary tell us about this one well this is the 105th anniversary of the battle of lone pine in gallipoli and i think most of uh, your listeners will be quite familiar with the the name lone pine because it's just so iconic in australian military history and it was one of the key battles at Gallipoli and basically what had happened was this took place in August 1915 and after the landings at Gallipoli had not achieved what they set out to achieve the Allies tried again for this big this big battle to try and take the Turkish positions once and for all and Lone Pine was intended as a diversionary action while they were landing troops in other places most notably at Suvla Bay and so Australian troops attacked at Lone Pine which was an area that had actually been captured on the first day but the front lines had not moved very much since that first day. So the Australians launched a big attack on the 6th of August and it went until the 10th of August and was characterised by very bitter hand-to-hand fighting in the Turkish trenches. But eventually the Australians prevailed at Lone Pine, which really was the only success of the entire August offensive because the other the landings at Suvla were not a great success. Yeah. Other attacks that were going on at the time were not a great success. So at the end of the day, what had intended to be a diversion at Lone Pine turned out to be the only real success of the August offensive. But Lone Pine in itself was not going to do anything to further the Allied aims to, to win the campaign. It was a relatively small action 
uh, in the big scheme of things. And even though the Australians were quite successful at capturing the Turkish trenches, uh, it wasn't going to do anything strategically to, to help the Allies win the Gallipoli campaign. Must have been like, oh, I, it would be hard to imagine what it would have been like for them landing been, there. Yeah, it would have been absolutely horrific. I mean, the whole Gallipoli campaign was awful in terms of the terrain and the the disease and the, the, the rotting corpses in no man's land. Oh. Just every aspect of it is horrific. But the fighting at Lone Pine was particularly severe because yep. they broke into the Turkish trenches. They then had to fight their way hand to hand against the Turks using grenades and bayonets and fists and whatever else they could lay their hands on. And by the end of the fighting, the Australians had lost about 2,500 men killed or wounded. And the Turks had lost probably as many as 6,000 men killed or wounded. And all the Australians had to show for it was they, they had succeeded in what they'd set out to do. They'd captured the trenches. But all that had really done is move their line forward a couple of hundred yards. So it was a big price to pay to simply secure some more Turkish trenches. So the Turks lost actually a lot more than we did. Yeah, absolutely, because they, they kept pouring men into the line trying to, uh, trying to take back their positions and the Australians by that stage were dug in so could pour fire into the Turks. So the Turks lost a lot more than anyone at Gallipoli. We always think about Gallipoli from the Allied perspective, but the, the, the people that did the most suffering there for certain uh, were the Turkish soldiers fighting uh, in their homeland. Yeah, I actually haven't thought about it from their perspective before you mentioned this, but that's, um, yeah, it must have been a, for any of us to even imagine what it would have been like, it's beyond imagination to be yeah, there. It absolutely is. And, um, you know, we, we tend to do this a little bit um, as, as the, when we're on the Allied side, we tend to only focus on our own part of the campaign. But obviously the, there was an enemy there who did a very good job of stopping us. And at the end of the day, in spite of the the terrain and all these other things we talk about in Gallipoli, that the reason the Gallipoli campaign was not a success was because of the stiff defence from the Turkish defenders who were fighting for their homeland. So that, that's the reason we didn't succeed at Gallipoli is we were defeated by the Turks in that campaign. Yeah, so the Anzacs, the battle, sorry, the Anzac battles of Lone Pine and, and the Neck were part of the Allies' August offensive in Gallipoli. So what was the main aim of that offensive and the outcome? Well, the August offensive was really the, the, the biggest and final attempt for the Allies to win the Gallipoli campaign. And the plan basically was that they, they got a whole new heap of troops that came into Gallipoli and they landed some of them at Suvla Bay, British troops at Suvla Bay in the north. And they were also doing a big flanking move. They were going to break out of the Anzac sector and then do a big flanking move around the Turks and capture the high ground and it was going to be a great victory. But it was a ridiculous plan. It, it had no hope of success. The one thing that always strikes me, Karen, when I look at Gallipoli is how divorced from reality the planning was for all of these actions. The landing was ridiculously overly complicated. The August offensive was based on fantasy. The idea that men could, could navigate through some of the most treacherous country you would imagine, hills yeah. and gullies and ravines and cliffs, the concept that these men could march through there at night in the dark without having scouted the land before. And in one night, not only navigate this impossible terrain, but then attack and capture Turkish positions. The, the only time they had allocated for this entire maneuver was one night. It was just, it was obviously never going to happen. And everything had to go perfectly for, for it to have any hope of success. And of course, in warfare, that never happens. So at the end of the day, in spite of everything that was going on, the, the August offensive was a failure. All they managed to do was establish yet another area of occupation at Suvla Bay. The big flanking manoeuvre I described was a complete failure. 
um, at Lone Pine, they had success capturing those Turkish trenches, but that didn't contribute much at all to the overall scheme of things. And then, of course, you mentioned the neck. Now, the neck was just an absolute tragedy, one of the greatest tragedies of the First World War. And it was famously depicted at the end of Peter Weir's 1981 movie, Gallipoli, when Mel Gibson, uh -huh. the Mel Gibson movie, and it was very famously depicted those waves of light horsemen charging across to certain death across no man's land. And in those, those four waves of light horsemen charged out of their trenches towards the Turkish positions and were all mown down before they got a few yards and 250 Australians were killed in that action. So just disaster after disaster. The whole Gallipoli campaign was a giant disaster that never should have occurred. Um, but they, some of these battles were, um, were even more disastrous than most. When you take tours to these places, what's it like walking around and, and really thinking about um, what actually happened there? It's haunting. That's the word. You feel like you're walking with ghosts. And if you go to a place like the Neck, and famously these 250 men were killed in an area the size of three tennis courts. That was how it was described. Wow. It's a tiny area. And when you go there and that the frontline trench is still there where the Australians attacked from. So you can stand in that trench and then you can walk across that ground where so many men were just mown down and you're so exposed. As you, as you walk across, you just see why they were, they were mown down. And, and today it's just a beautiful cemetery. There, there, there's, no, there's no battlefield anymore. It's just a big open area where you know that, that several hundred people are buried. And there's not even any headstones marking their graves. There's only a very small number of headstones. There's just a large area of grass. And you know mm. that hundreds of men are buried beneath that grass and so it's, it's just haunting you, you feel like you're walking with ghosts is there a reason the neck the name it's an old um it's an old boar word from like an afrikaans word from the boar war just meaning a narrow um a, a narrow piece of land it's exactly what it is so it was it was a carryover from men who'd fought in south africa in the boar war who then applied it so neck in afrikaans just means a very narrow strip of land and that's exactly what it is it's right on the top of a ridge the ridge narrows to this tiny little space uh, and that's where the australians had to attack so um, that was why they attacked in four waves at the neck because there wasn't enough space for them to all to attack as one unit. So they had to go in four separate waves of about 150 men each. So imagine what it must have been like after the first wave went and was completely mown down. Then the second wave, having, having seen what happened to their mates, they had to attack. Oh. And then the third wave and then the fourth wave. They, they knew by that stage they were going to certain death. Um, and that's where you hit one of the soldiers just said, just said to his mate, goodbye, Cobber, and God bless you and gave him a hug and then charged off. And that, that inscription is now written on that man's headstone in the cemetery where he, uh, where he is now buried. So it's just, it's the most moving place to visit. You want to turn around and run the other way, wouldn't you? But they're a team, they're together. Yeah, absolutely. And there are reports that by the time the fourth wave went over, because they knew that they weren't going to make any ground, that as soon as they left their trenches, the men just dived over the edge of the, of the um, into shelter rather than even trying to charge towards the Turkish trenches. So they did their mm. bit by leaving the trenches like their mates had done, but they didn't even waste time trying to get to the Turkish positions. They just dived into cover as soon as yeah. they got out in the open. Wow. Um, as you can understand that they would because leaving those trenches under fire like that is just the most extraordinary act of bravery. Matt, the failed August offensive at Gallipoli has been recognised as the beginning of the end of a nine month Gallipoli campaign. While the Anzac's entry into Gallipoli is an important day in Australia, Anzac Day, and the tragic landings at Anzac Cove on the 25th of April 1915 are very well known to most Australians, but less is known about the Gallipoli campaign and how it came to an end. 
Can you fill us in on that? Well, after these August offensives that we were describing, the Allies really ran out of enthusiasm for what was going on at Gallipoli. They, their focus switched to the Western Front in France and Belgium, where there was fighting going on. They staged a new landing at Salonika in Greece. So there was, there was a whole host of, um, of other things going on at the time. And really, they're just, their interest in Gallipoli waned. And, and not much happened between the August offensive and the evacuation in December. There were some battles that took place, um, but, uh, but really not a lot was happening anymore in Gallipoli. So the, 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 the troops just contented themselves with digging in, staying, staying out, of, out of harm's way and just trying to do their best to survive. But then as it got later in the year, a couple of really important things happened. The first one was the weather. Now, we always think about Gallipoli as dry, hot, flies, dust, and that's absolutely what it's like in the middle of summer. But in winter, it gets freezing cold, literally freezing cold. And in November, big storms blew in. Uh-huh. And that destroyed a lot of the piers and a lot of the landing areas, which they, which they relied on to bring food and supplies ashore. Um, but worse than that, it flooded the trenches. And then the water that came flooding into the trenches then froze, turned to ice and snow. Uh-huh. And about 300 men died of exposure in November during the November storm. So absolutely extraordinary to think of men freezing to death. And there's photos from the time of Australian troops standing in the snow at Gallipoli. So the first thing that happened was they realised that during winter, and this was only November, they still had the yep. depths of winter to go through. So during winter, they realised that it was going to be impossible to hold on to these narrow positions they'd managed to capture at Gallipoli. But at the same time, through a complicated series of political machinations behind the scenes, Bulgaria joined the war on the side of Turkey and Germany. And that meant for the first time, there was a land route from Germany and Austria to Gallipoli. And so now they could use a train line all the way from Austria all the way to Gallipoli, which meant they could bring in heavy guns for the first time, heavy artillery guns. So that's something that hadn't been at Gallipoli uh, at all during the campaign. There hadn't actually been much artillery fire at Gallipoli. But by November, they were able to start to bring in big guns from Austria and Germany. And what that meant is the Turks could now really start blasting the Anzac positions. And so what they found in November was this combination of terrible weather coming in, winter storms, but also very heavy artillery fire starting to grow and starting to destroy those positions that they'd managed to hang on to. And so they just realised that it was, it was untenable. They, they, they couldn't stay any longer. And so the decision to leave was made relatively early. Um, but the question was then, how were they going to do it? How were they going to possibly get away right under the noses of the Turks? And really what that led to was the evacuation, which must be considered the greatest success of the entire campaign was the way we left. And the evacuation was really quite extraordinary, which is why I'm so, um, so happy that we've got this book coming out now uh, to tell that story. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. Story. It's an incredible story. So the evacuation, who planned that? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the decision was made to evacuate. So uh, the, the, the planning was left to General Birdwood, who was a British general who had commanded the Australians and New Zealanders. Uh, but his chief of staff was an Australian called Cyril Brudenell White. And he was really the, the architect of the evacuation. And normally when an army evacuates, what they would do is they would plan a big diversionary attack in another area. And then while the enemy was distracted, they would basically make a run for it from the area they wanted to leave. But they realised at Gallipoli that this wouldn't work very successfully because the Turkish troops were just way too close to the, to the Allied positions. So they decided on an incredibly audacious plan, which was basically just to sneak away. Just over a period of weeks, they just gradually reduced the numbers of troops while setting up this sort of ruse that they were still there. So they men would march around and make sure they were seen by the Turks and they'd 
move artillery guns around and they'd have carts driving backwards and forwards to throw up dust clouds. They had ships coming in and pretending to unload men and then leaving, you know, leaving again by yep. the under the cover of darkness with men on board. So all these ruses to convince the Turks that, uh, that they were still there. But the most important one that Brudenell White came up with was what they called silent periods. And basically for weeks before the evacuation, what they would do is they would, they would just, they would stop firing at the Turks and they would stop oh. shooting altogether. The Turks would then stick their heads up over the top of the trench and not get shot at. And so then they'd sneak out a little bit into no man's land and they'd come closer and closer and closer to investigate what was going on. But it wasn't until they got right up on the allied positions that the allies would open fire and they'd open fire and they'd kill a lot of the Turks and they'd repeat this every night. And what that did was it conditioned the Turks that if there was silence coming from the allied trenches, it didn't mean they'd gone away. Just a new, a new strategy. And so the Turks got very conditioned to this idea of if it goes silent in the allied trenches, stay away. Because eventually if we get too close, they'll open fire and kill us. And so what that meant was when they actually did evacuate, it took the Turks some time to have the courage to, to get forward and investigate what was actually going on. So that was the, the genius move that, uh, that resulted in the evacuation. There's famously things like the self-firing rifle, which was an Australian invention where they had water dripping from one, from one tin into another one. And when the bottom tin fill up, filled up with water, it would fall and pull a trigger on a rifle so that after they left, rifles were still firing at random intervals in the darkness after all the, all the allies had gone. But those, while they were a handy addition to the arsenal of, of, of the evacuation, they probably didn't make the big difference that they've been depicted as in, uh, in, in more recent uh, literature. Uh, the key to the evacuation were these silent periods, conditioning the Turks that silence could still be a very deadly enterprise. It's like Pavlov's dogs, isn't it? <laughs> Training it's people to think it's in a way. Conditioning them to get used to silence and also not to trust silence because the key to the silent periods was not just that the trenches are silent so the Turks are used to them being no men there. The key to the silent periods was the Turks learning that if they got too close during a silent period, the Allies would open fire and the, Tur the Turks would suffer very heavy casualties. And so, so it was a really, a really clever way of, uh, of deceiving the Turks. So you, you were saying that the troops were leaving in smaller numbers and gradually getting away. In the end, when the final evacuation after this period of conditioning, were there still a lot of soldiers to evacuate finally? They evacuated about 20,000 soldiers on the last night. Wow. But that's not much considering that there were 135,000 soldiers there originally. So they, they had 20,000 left. But in the last hours of the evacuation, the last hour, for example, there were 30 men occupying the frontline positions in a, in a space that would normally, normally be occupied by 1,000 men. There were just 30 men holding onto that frontline trench. And then those men were the last ones to leave who then crept down the, the, the trenches and, and headed towards the beach. So it was a fairly you know, a nerve wracking time to see if this would be a success, this evacuation. And had the Turks attacked at that time, they would have broken through and gotten all the way to the beach in a matter of minutes. So it was a very perilous time. But the fascinating thing is, Karen, they expected, when they first started talking about evacuation, they were expecting that they would lose perhaps 50% of all the men at Gallipoli would be killed or wounded in an evacuation. In the end, some men were wounded, but no men were killed in the Gallipoli evacuation. They didn't That's amazing. Men killed in the entire evacuation. So that was a, a very ingenious plan. It was an incredible plan. It was, and as I said, it was by far the greatest achievement of the entire campaign was, was how, they, uh, how they left. But as uh, it's been famously said, wars are not won by evacuations. You know, we, 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 really, we really respect these, you know, we celebrate these wonderful achievements, the Gallipoli evacuation, Dunkirk during the Second World War, 
we celebrate these remarkable feats of getting men away uh, when they're under the noses of the enemy, but evacuations don't win wars. And the evacuation, as great a success as it was, was the death knell for a terrible campaign, which was a huge disaster for the Allies. So you are publishing a book by Peter Hart. And is this your living history that's publishing this book? Yeah, absolutely. So my media, the media side of my, uh, of my business living history is um, that does up to this point, we've done podcasts and videos is now also book publishing. So Peter Hart is a historian that's contributed a lot to the work that we do. And he's an absolute expert on the Gallipoli campaign. And for 40 years, he was the oral historian at the Imperial War Museum in London, which meant he interviewed thousands and thousands of veterans. Um, and so he is telling this story of the evacuation through the words of the men who went through it. So there's lots of great quotes and, and, and history accounts in there. And in the words of the men, you can hear the story of the evacuation, this incredible tale of how they managed to sneak away under the noses of the Turks. So this book has really taken him 40 years. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's something he's wanted to do for a long time. And, uh, and uh, we were sitting down over a beer one day and said, it'd be good to do a book together. And uh, this just seemed like the obvious, the obvious choice. We were going to do something on the Gallipoli landings, but we felt that that had just been done to death. Everyone's done a story about the Gallipoli landings, but no one has talked about the evacuation and the, evac the landings were a disaster and the evacuation was a triumph. So it's really the part of the story that, uh, that should be told. And it's an amazing story. Well, I've only just scratched the surface here of, of the achievement of getting away without a single man killed when your enemy is right on top of you and completely fooling the enemy. They had no idea. The Turks had no idea that the, that the Anzacs were leaving. So just an absolutely extraordinary achievement. These interviews he conducted over a 40 year period, has he, has, has he woven them into a story? Can you tell us a little bit about the construction of the book? Well, he, t he tells the story in chapters about what was going on at the time. And he's a very good historian. So he gives his analysis of what, of what was going on at the time and, and explains exactly what was happening. But then to illustrate what that meant for the men, he will then um, intersperse quotes from the men with that. So not just, not just from his oral history interviews, but also diary entries, letters, memoirs that the soldiers wrote after the war. So he weaves this this through the narrative he weaves the these personal accounts into the story and that's what really makes it something special so for example it would talk about um the, the the men the last men to leave the trenches making their way down towards the beach and and peter will talk about um and it was obviously a very tense time and the men left the front line and, and made their way down to the beach and, and quietly got onto the boats that were waiting for them but then what gives it its great power is then that personal account so then he'll say um private Reg Smith yep. described yep. the situation and then you have this wonderful quote from Reg Smith saying, oh, we were terrified that Johnny Turk was going to come over at any minute. And, and it was the, the longest 20 minutes of my life was that walk down to the beach. And finally we were gone. Yeah. glad to see the back of the place. So it's just a really wonderful achievement. It's a, it's a great book. I'm, I'm really very happy with it. How long has it taken you guys to put this together? Oh, uh, we've been working on it for about the last year, um, but yeah. COVID has actually brought everything forward because Peter was working on another book for his uh, main publisher, which was supposed to come out which is a book about the Second World War, which was due out uh, about this time, but they postponed it because of COVID because no one can go into bookshops in England to buy it. <laughs> so they oh. pushed it back till next year. And so uh, it gave us the opportunity to do the Gallipoli book um, a bit quicker than we'd anticipated. So now the, the book's about to come out. It'll be out in the first week of September, which is very exciting. People wanting to buy a copy of the book, how, how can they find it? 
Uh, well, online is the best place to do it. So they can either get an ebook or a, or a paperback copy of the book. Uh, probably our website is the best place, which is livinghistorytv.com. Uh, and they can go there. If they just search into the, if they type into the internet Gallipoli evacuation book, it'll come up as well. It's called The Gallipoli Evacuation by Peter Hart. So if they just do a Google search for Gallipoli evacuation book, they'll find it and they can order it and have it uh, sent out as soon as it's printed. It's very exciting. Yeah, it's very exciting. And, and for you, I'm sure having your first book come out for your actual business is um, a real achievement. So congratulations on that. You know, I know when I wrote my own book, it's exciting to, to actually get a copy, but to, to be actually publishing with someone is a real achievement, huge achievement for you. Well, thank you so much, Karen. We're very excited. We've, it's the first of many books we've got coming up. We've got another four books in the pipeline that will be out um, sort of by this time next year. So, you know, th there's a lot of great stories out there. We do a lot of work with great historians and, and there's these amazing stories to be told. So we've got books about Vietnam and the Second World War and all sorts of great topics coming out. So uh, I'm just really enjoying it. It's what COVID has enabled me to do is it's given me the time to focus on on book publishing and, and, and telling more of these great stories. So I feel very privileged that I get to bring them to light. And I noticed you've got a huge amount of downloads of your Living History podcast now. I was green with envy the other day thinking, wow, you guys are really nailing it. It's going well, thank you. I think, again, during COVID that, um, that people are looking for interesting content to pass the days, so especially when we we're all locked down and couldn't leave our houses. I think people were, um, were, were enjoying just hearing these stories and, and having something to take their mind off the perils of daily life. Um, but yeah, we just passed our millionth download last week, which is very exciting. So that is um, huge. People who aren't podcasting don't understand. It's difficult to get the followers to download your podcast. You you have very good content and that's why it's working for you. Oh, thank you. It's um, I'm, I'm just the conduit though, to tell the stories. It's the history that is the, the, the great story and I just feel very lucky that I get to uh, to share that with people but uh, but no thank you it is it is a labor of love and I've been very um I've really enjoyed doing the podcast for the last couple of years and um, I imagine for younger Australians your podcast really tell a lot about the history of the world and I know that your passion is also just not we're talking about Gallipoli today but your passion is about the Somme the Menin Gate and Vietnam, and I know you've travelled to all those places, and when your tours are up and running, you travel the world. Your tours take people all over the world to actually firsthand visit these places and, and understand and learn the history. Yeah, I'm very lucky. I get to walk the ground of some of the most beautiful parts of the world and tell this, these great Australian history stories. But, it's, I mean, there's a, there's a strong focus on military history because it's so important to Australia, but it's not just military history. In fact, the latest episode of the podcast this week was all about the music scene in Los Angeles in the 1960s. So we do a range of, of, of history topics, but there is a strong, uh, a strong focus on military history just because that's my background and it's, uh, it's, there's just so many great tales to tell there. So, but I mean, the podcast is called Living History because it's all about keeping history alive in, uh, in all sorts of areas. Well, one day you'll have to come and join me when my story room in Manly gets up and running again. And, you know, we, ha we have amazing storytellers come along and tell a 10-minute story. So um, maybe one day you'll come and join us. Oh, I'd love to. That sounds great. So thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, and for this amazing anniversary, the celebration, the 105th anniversary of the Battle of Lone Pine and the Neck, and also for sharing this amazing book that your business living history is putting out with, by Peter Hart. So 
Thank well you, done. It's been a real uh, pleasure. It's uh, as I said, I, I love talking about these things, and uh, just thank you so much for having me on the show. You're welcome. I, I can tell how much you love talking about it. You're just so passionate about it, and it comes out in everything you say. So thank you. Thank you, Karen. Cheers. So this is it for today's program. It's time to say cheerio to the wonderful Northern Beaches community. Join me next week for another episode of Aging Fearlessly. And now for a song written by Nick Howard, especially for the listeners. This is Karen Sander. Have a fantastic week. And remember, aging is inevitable and growing old is a choice. The sun is shining bright outside There's a sparkle in your eye It's not all nine to five It's a wonderful life Let's go and climb mountains high Swim across oceans wide Let your heart be alive.